Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week our podcast features three episodes of front page drama. Each one is about 12 minutes long. They all first aired in 1952. The new American Weekly presents Front Page Drama. I don't mean that you should do it. I started this and I'll see it through. Tell me, what, what's the name of that old folks' home out on the pike? Uh, I think you mean Laurel Hill Home. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'll telephone them tomorrow and find out how to get Mother Jones interested in the place. I can't stand her around here any longer. All right, Doris? All right, Michael. If the time comes when you must care for your mother or dad, it'll be well for you to remember this story of Doris and Michael Robeson and of Doris's agent parent, Mother Jones. Listen as front-page drama brings you an unusual story from the files of the American Weekly, the great magazine that's distributed with a leading Sunday newspaper on sale in this city. As mothers-in-law go, Mother Jones ranks among the best. She makes her home with Doris and Michael Robeson, her daughter and son-in-law. Michael is the first to admit that she's a sweet old thing, very frail, but a terrific talker. And lately, she's been telling long, fanciful tales which irritate him more than a little. And that was the subject of his conversation with his wife one evening after Mother Jones had retired to her room. More coffee, dear? Just a spot, thank you. You seem awfully tired out tonight, Michael. Well, and that verbal barrage from your mother at dinner didn't help me any, Doris. Michael, how can you talk like that? After all, you and I are going to be old someday, and we'll want someone to love and take care of us. I know, darling, I know, but... Well, as I've said before, perhaps by by renting her room and cutting a few corners, we we could place Mother into an old folks' home and have our home to ourselves. No, I, I just can't do it, Michael. What? Mother thinks she's so welcome here. And she's a tremendous help to me. And company when you're away on business. Besides, she's so fond of you that I, I'm sure she would think it was my idea if we suggested that she leave. And I don't want her to think that. But, Doris, I, I don't mean to be unreasonable in this. I, I simply would like more privacy when I come home at night. Not this everlasting chattering about what happened years ago. Am I asking too much to have a little quiet in my own home? No, dear. You're not asking too much. Only, you are asking too much when you ask me to broach the subject to Mother. You'll have to do it, dear. I I just can't do it. Very well, then I will, and soon, too. Tomorrow night, in fact. I'll tell you what. After dinner, you excuse yourself and drop over to see Edna for an hour or so. Just leave us two alone, and I'll do the trick. Michael, I must say I feel very good to think you want to have a talk with me. Doris told me today I simply must not chatter so much when you come home tired in the evening. <laughs> so it makes me feel pretty good to have you really want to visit with me. Well, yes, there's something I must explain to your Mother Jo. Now, Michael, you needn't apologize for your language when you barked your shins in the dark last night. I'm sorry about that chair I left out in the hall. If that's what you mean, I plumb forgot about it. So I'm to blame. I think nothing of it, Mother Jones, but... Well, uh... 
that's not what I want. I learned long ago from my own dear husband that the best of men swear sometimes. I remember, as if it was yesterday, the time the icebox lid fell on his head. We had the old-fashioned kind, you know, not a refrigerator. I was just a silly bride, so I locked myself in my room and shed tears. When, after all, <laughs> you couldn't blame him a bit. Now, oh, Mother Jones, I'm sure I don't blame your husband for swearing quite a lot during his life. You and Andrew are two of a kind. You'd get along fine. Michael, I like to think of heaven as a place where there'll be many happy reunions and people who never met on earth will be good friends, like you and Andrew. <laughs> if I get there. I might not make the grade. Oh, yes, you will, Michael. Well, maybe Doris will put a good word for me, I guess. But, Mother Jones, we've, we've been making some plans. You'll need no recommendation from Doris, good girl though she is, on account of what it says in the good book. I'm afraid I don't recall. That's why I think they're already polishing up the brightest star for your crown of glory. Yeah, well, that'll be just great, me wearing a crown. Now, if you'll just let me tell you what Doris and I decided... In just a little minute, please, Michael. I only want to say there's one thing we can't any of us escape when we pass to a better life, and that's having our records looked up. Yeah. That's where a lot of people who thought they were some pumpkins here on Earth are going to get a jolt. But... Now, it may seem pretty bold of me to say this, Michael, but when you're old, like me, the wall between you and the next world gets thin, more like a veil. That's how I know not much will be said to you, Michael, about not being in church of late, oh. without playing golf on Sundays. Oh, it might be mentioned in passing, but what's going to count, Michael, is your taking an old woman into your home, a lonely old woman who after living in her own house all her days, couldn't have borne it to be in some old folks' home. But, Mother Jones, I've, I've often felt you'd find it a great deal pleasanter I if... know how you've often felt, Michael. You think I don't, but I do. I know you can't help getting tired of having your mother-in-law around all the time and wishing she was in Timbuktu, but I guess you know it can't be too much longer, so you've kept your temper. Well, I... That's I... why I know, sure as you're born, someday the Lord is going to look you straight in the eye and say, Why, come in, Michael Robeson. You come right in and make yourself at home. <laughs> I've been wanting to tell you for a long time, though I didn't mean for you to get all red in the face like that, Michael, I must say. Now, I promise to keep still. I won't talk any more. I'll listen. Now, what was it you wanted to tell me, Michael? Listen in just a moment for the heartwarming conclusion to this front-page drama brought to you by the new American Weekly. According to an exclusive article in the coming issue of the great new American Weekly, the small child's world must contain his mother. Dr. Marinia Farnham, eminent psychiatrist and author of the book The Adolescent, says that even a few days of separation between mother and child, particularly when baby is less than a year old, may establish fears to last a lifetime. She suggests eight rules to follow in raising your youngster, rules which will save him from torments later on in life. You'll be interested in Dr. Farnham's article entitled Fear, just one of the many informative features coming your way in this week's issue of the great new American Weekly, carried with a leading Sunday newspaper on sale in this city.
And now back to our front page drama. Determined that his sweet old mother-in-law should move out of his home into a home for old folks, Michael Robson's interview with her didn't get very far from his point of view. In fact, her question, now what was it you wanted to tell me, Michael, suddenly brought their conversation to a close, and he left to join his wife, Doris, who was visiting a neighbor's home. As they walked home later that evening... I wonder, Doris, if the old gal was sharp enough to know she was putting me off. Maybe not, but even though she was, my mind is made up and now, but just how am I going to tell her? Well, I suppose if I must, I must. No, no, no. I, I, I don't mean that you should do it. I've started this and I'll see it through. What's the name of that old folks home out on the pike? I think you mean Laurel Hill home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I'll telephone them tomorrow and find out what's the best way of getting Mother Jones' interest in the place and uh, find out all the details of, of having her live there. All right, Doris. All right, Michael. One of the preliminary steps to having old Mother Jones entered in the Laurel Hill home for the aged was a physical examination to which she submitted happily. The examination was made by the Robeson's family physician, and Mother Jones was unaware that it was for other than the usual reasons. Michael dropped in old Dr. Ware's office to learn the result. Sorry you had to wait so long, Michael. Seems the world's ills will never come to an end. Oh, that's all right, Dr. Ware. I was just out for an evening walk, and I thought I'd find out how Mother Jones' examination came out. I see. I see. Well, Michael, Mother Jones is all right. Now, I'm almost as old as she is, but I'll wager she'll outlive me and lots of others all right. <laughs> Remember her as a girl. Pretty? <laughs> never was such a beauty as Nellie Jones. Knew Andrew, too. Fine fellow. You kind of remind me of Andrew. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Eh, too bad Andrew had to go when he did. Now, Mother Jones isn't one to be alone, I'll tell you that. I'm glad to hear you say that, Dr. Ware, because I, I, I tried to impress that Mother Jones would be better off in a home like Laurel Hill, say, where, the, where there are lots of other people around that she could talk to. And... Well, I don't know that she needs lots of other people, but Nellie likes to talk all right. She sure needs somebody. But couldn't that somebody be other older folks like yourself? Well, with Nellie, well, she likes a home that isn't spelled with a capital letter, like Laurel Hill. Her only joy now is to warm her lonely old heart and the reflected glow of her daughter's being married to you, and to remember her own Andrew as much like you. I hope you appreciate the sincere flattery of that. Why, I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, son, I, I hope I've helped you a little with your problem. Well, it, it isn't exactly a problem. It's just... Well, I, I thought perhaps Mother Jones might be happy. Uh, you're right, Michael. It isn't a problem exactly. After all, Mother Jones is a member of the human family along with you and me. we got to give, forgive her her faults and expect her to do the same. As I always say, there's all different kinds of old folks. Some of them can't stand being with their kin... Love them, of course, but, but want to be independent. Then the other kind, well, they'd just pine away and die if they weren't near a son or a daughter. Now, Mother Jones is one of that kind, son. Yes, I... I see, Doctor. Well, thanks very much. That evening, as Michael and Doris and Mother Jones were having coffee after dinner... The subject of conversation turned to Mother Jones' recent physical examination. 
Wonder why John Ware doesn't phone me about that medical examination I took first of the week. Oh, I, I almost forgot to tell you, Mother Jones. I, I dropped in at Dr. Ware's office on the way home. Well, I, I mean, I was walking by, so I, I happened to stop. And, and Dr. Ware says, well, it's your fit as a fiddle, Mother. Well, now, isn't that nice of you? Doris, your husband is getting more like my Andrew every day that passes. <laughs> Michael, I've been wondering what it was that you wanted to talk with me about one night about a week ago. Do you remember? Me? I, I want to discuss something with you? Yes. Do you remember what it was, Doris? What? No, dear. Oh, unless... Oh, uh... I remember what it was. I was... Well, I was thinking that since we're all such good old friends, would, wouldn't it be nice if we invite old Dr. Ware over to dinner some night? And so ended the story of Michael and Doris Robson and of Mother Jones. A heartwarming story and a true story, for this has been another front-page drama from the files of the American Weekly. Naturally, real names have not been used. The colossal vanity of Argentina's co-dictator, Eva Perón, will not be soon forgotten by the world. For according to an article in the coming issue of the great new American Weekly, Eva, wife of Argentina's dictator-president, has designed her palace of death, a transparent tomb like Lenin's in Moscow, where after death she plans to play a star's part for posterity. Ray Josephs, author of Argentine Diary and other books on Latin America, has written a fascinating account of how Eva Perón planned her palace of death. Be sure to read this and other timely features in the coming issue of the great new American Weekly carried with the leading Sunday newspaper on sale in this city. The Great New American Weekly brings you Front Page Drama. Now, now, son, don't blame Alva. She's probably got her reasons for wanting to get married again. I've got my reasons for coming here today, Sheriff. I've been quiet about this long enough, but now I'm convinced. I think my brother Cliff was murdered, and I think Alva had something to do with his death. A devoted brother questions the official report that his brother died a natural death. Listen as the great new American Weekly brings you another fascinating story in this front-page drama. Cliff and Alva Hoffey had lived the entire ten years of their married life on a prosperous farm in the south of Illinois back in the horse and buggy days. Although ten years older than his wife, Cliff appeared to be in the best of health, and it was a shocked countryside that learned of his untimely death at the age of 40. Three months or so after his death, his brother, Emmett Hoffey, drove out to the farm one afternoon to visit the widowed Alva. Oh. Morning, Alva. Nice day today. Well, as a living breather, if it ain't Emmett Hoffey, my dear brother-in-law. What do I owe the honor of this unexpected visit? Well, I heard some news in town yesterday, and I just wanted to check with you to see if it was true. Well, go right ahead and check. What'd you hear, Emmett? I heard that you was going to marry Charlie Flynn, and I... Well, I just couldn't believe my ears. What, with Cliff dead only three months? Well, and... you heard just right, see? I've mourned Cliff long enough now, and this farm needs a man to run it. Anyway, Cliff wouldn't want me to mope around mourning. I think it's fine you want to marry again, Alva. Only thing is, I think it could wait just a little longer. I ain't sure Cliff would like the idea you're marrying Charlie Flynn. 
Them two never did hit it off so good. And you I... better hold your tongue about Charlie Emmett Hoffy. All I have to do is tell him you're out here bothering me. He'll put you in your place, all right. You don't scare me none, Alva. Neither you nor Charlie. But you've given me an idea, all right. Yes, sir, you've given me an idea. I think I'll drive into town where folks are more friendly. See you around, Alva. Get up, Dolly. Arriving in the nearby town of Hillsboro, Emmett Hoffey went directly to the office of County Sheriff Creighton. Here, come in. Hi, Sheriff. Well, Emmett Hoffey, come in, boy. Oh, say, Emmett, I was away on vacation when they buried poor old Cliff. Haven't had a chance to extend Mrs. Creighton's and my sympathy. Gosh, what a shame. He was in the prime of life. Successful, apparently healthy... And then, all of a sudden, gone. Just like that. Yeah, Sheriff. It sure was a shock to me. As a matter of fact, that's why I come in here today. Talk about Cliff. Well, I don't blame you, son. He was a good brother to you and a man worth talking about. Why, well, I remember him as a boy. No higher than that wastebasket there. And I remember his wedding, too. About ten years ago, it was that he and Alva got married. And, uh, did you hear she's getting married again, Sheriff? She's... Alva, she's getting married again, you see. Well, well, is that so? Well, I suppose women don't like being alone in a farm that size. You mean you haven't heard who the new bridegroom's going to be? Why, no, son, I can't say he's a have. Charlie Flynn. Charlie Flynn? Yeah, Sheriff. That dirty little tramp. Now, now, son, don't blame Alva. She's probably got her reasons for doing this. I've got my reasons for coming here today, Sheriff. I've been quiet about this long enough, but now I'm convinced. I think my brother Cliff was murdered, and I think Alva had something to do with his now death. Now, careful what you're saying, boy. I mean it. That's why I came to see you. Seems impossible that someone as healthy as Cliff would just up and die like that. Yeah, but the coroner's report says that Cliff died of detonous poisoning. According to what I hear, Cliff cut his hand while he was butchering. It got infected. That's all true, Sheriff. Cliff cut his hand, and, and he was sick, sure. But it was nothing he couldn't get over with right care. So I went on a trip to Milwaukee. Next thing I knew, I get a telegram, he's dying. Ah, terrible thing. I get back, it was near the end. Alva letters. Alva letters, he gasped. I don't know what he meant. I still don't. Well, did you ask Alva what she thinks he meant about the letters? Well, first she said she had no idea. Now she won't even talk about them. She practically ordered me off the farm today. Sheriff, do you think there was anything between Alva and Flynn before Cliff died? Mm. I mean... Well, did you ever hear any gossip? No, oh, can't say as I did, son. Alva bailed Flynn out once about a year ago when he got in trouble. But, well, that was just probably a neighborly gesture. She did? Did, did, did Cliff know about that? Uh, I don't know, son. Sheriff, I want to reopen this case. Oh, but, son, you ain't got a case. There's nothing to go on. The death certificate's on file. The estate's all settled. That's all there is to it. Then you ain't going to help me. Well, I can't, son. There's nothing to go on. I can understand about you being angry about Elvis getting married so fast, but, well, there's no law says she can't. Now, I'd advise you to drop the whole thing, boy. Just drop the whole thing. Maybe you're right, Sheriff. But I ain't aiming to drop it. I'll follow through with this thing in my own way. I'll find out just how my brother did die. <laughs>
Listen in just a moment as the New American Weekly brings you the surprising climax to this front-page drama. In the coming issue of the great New American Weekly, Broadway's most distinguished reporter, Maurice Zolotov, writes about Broadway's most distinguished star, Miss Tallulah Bankhead. Zolotov, author of No People Like Show People and the forthcoming book, It Takes All Kinds, purports to tell what Miss Bankhead isn't telling in her book of memoirs just published. It's Mr. Zolotov's private opinion that while she's the envy of many American women, Miss Bankhead is also a lonely and unhappy woman. You'll be interested in this timely and informative feature, along with many others, coming your way in this next week's Great New American Weekly, distributed with a leading Sunday newspaper on sale in this city. And now back to our front-page drama. Emmett Hoffey, convinced that his late brother had not died a natural death three months previously, attempted in vain to enlist the aid of the sheriff in his cause. Several weeks passed, and one day he encountered Charlie Flynn on the main street of Hillsboro. Well, if it ain't Mr. Emmett Hoffey himself in person. Hello, Flynn. Well, no congratulations for the new bridegroom. You and I must be some kind of relatives or other, ain't we? Let's drop that subject right off, Flynn. Oh, come on now, Emmett. No reason why we should be bad friends. Alva's none too keen on you, I know, but... Uh, well, women don't understand these things sometimes. How about a drink over at the Silver Dollar, Emmett? All right, Flynn, I'll have a drink. Well, now you got the right attitude. Come on, boy. Well, what'll it be, my friend? I'll have a beer, thanks. Yeah. Make it two beers, bartender. Oh, and some of them dill pickles you got there. Well, they're keeping you busy, Emmett? Well, I haven't been doing much since, well, since Cliff passed away. And... Yeah. Bad break, Emmett. Very bad break. Yeah. Hey, you get around the county a lot. You happen to know anybody who'd take charge of the farm for a month or so? Alvin and I are going to Chicago. I want to look up some new farm machinery there and... Well, we want to have ourselves a little fun, too. But I'll be darned if everybody I know ain't working. Can't find nobody to take over for me. Well, I'd offer my own services, only I know Alvid never go for that. Well, you mean... You mean you'd take the job? Well, why not? I know all about that farm. I could run the place blindfolded. Why, sure you could. But I never thought you'd want to do it. Well, the only thing standing in the way would be Alva. Well, don't you worry about her, boy. I'm running things in this family. If you want the job of looking after that farm while we're gone, boy, you got it. It's a deal, then? It's a deal. I'll tell Alva about it when I go home to supper. Hey, bartender, two more beers here. Several days after the newly married Charlie Flynn's had been away and Emmett Hoffey had taken over managing the farm, he paid another call on Sheriff Creighton. Come in. Hi, Sheriff. Well, Emmett, good to see you again. Draw up a chair, son. Thank you, Sheriff. Well, Emmett, you take my advice. You decide to stay out of Charlie and Elva's affairs? Well, not exactly, Sheriff. You see, I went to work for Flynn last week. You went to work for Flynn? That's right, Sheriff. Watching the farm while they're in Chicago. Glad I did, too. Well, well. Life's full of surprises. Yeah, Sheriff. Like these letters... Read them and tell me what you think. Upon their return from Chicago, Alva and Charlie Flynn were summoned to the office of Sheriff Creighton. And in looking through your house, Alva, 
Emmett here found a couple of letters which I'd like to have explained to me. How dare you go looking through my house when I'm away? I'll have you arrested for thievery, that's oh, what... Shut up, Alva. Afraid I can't arrest Emmett here for trespassing when you left him in charge of him. Now, maybe you'll explain about these threatening letters which were sent to Cliff before he died. There's nothing to explain. They come in the mail to him, that's all. But on his deathbed, he gasped something about you and letters to Emmett. Didn't he, Emmett? That's right, Sheriff. That's a lie. Cliff said nothing of the kind. Well, the truth about that will come out at the trial. What do you mean, trial? I mean that I'm arresting you for the murder of your first husband, Cliff Hoffey. The writing on those letters matches up with your own writing, Elva. You're crazy. Charlie, tell him he's making a mistake. Tell him he... Now it's a tough break, baby. I'll do whatever I can. Sheriff, I'd like to go and get lawyer Hawkins to come here and talk to Alva. Sorry, I can't allow that, Flynn. You'll have to stay on here in jail along with Alva. Well... You see, Emmett found another letter. You want to read that one, Emmett? Sure do, Sheriff. It's in a woman's handwriting, Alva. And it says, Darling Charlie... I fixed it Saturday night in some grape juice like you told me to. It shouldn't be long now. I've done everything in my power to free myself so we can be together. And I'm sure that will be soon. As ever, your true one, Alva. And that letter involves you as an accomplice, friend. It's a lie. I didn't write any such letter. Yeah, and I never got no such letter. Well, Emmett... You both wrote them. And you both received them, all right. And you were both up to the same game. Holding on to him in secret in case the truth about Cliff's death ever came out. Only you both made a great mistake, the same mistake. You chose for a hiding place for these evil letters a big family Bible at Cliff's farm. And I found him in there with all good things like pressed flowers and family pictures. Just goes to show you that you can't use a holy Bible for evil doings. God won't stand for it. And so ended the mystery of Cliff Hoppy's death, solved by a devoted brother who took the case into his own hands. An absorbing story and a true story, for this has been another front-page drama brought to you by the great new American Weekly. Naturally, real names have not been used. When asked by the great new American Weekly to write a love story which seemed to him one of the great loves of all time, famous author Frank Yerby thought at once of Manon Roland and Leonard Buzot, immortal figures of the French Revolution. According to Mr. Yerby, who calls his story The Divided Heart, the love of Manon and Leonard was compounded of nobility of character, honor, and renunciation, elements sadly gone from our present world. Whenever possible in the story, the author has allowed the principals to speak for themselves. The letters quoted are their own words, set down exactly as translation will allow. To find out what was so unique about the love of Manon and Leonard... Read The Divided Heart by Frank Yerby in the coming issue of the great new American Weekly, distributed with a leading Sunday newspaper on sale in this city. The new American Weekly brings you front page drama. You should make a slip what more natural after having amnesia, forgetting everything for five years. You sound as if you believe this this yarn you've made up. I do believe it, and the old man will believe it, too. Now, here, put on this locket. You've got to start believing it right now. And so the daring plan was made. 
A plan that would lead the girl to wealth and happiness or be the ruin of two lives. Listen now to Front Page Drama, presented by the new American Weekly, the great magazine distributed with the leading Sunday newspaper in this city. Our story opens in a small, respectable dance hall not far from Broadway, where young couples may inexpensively whirl to their heart's content, and a lonely man may hire a partner for a modest fee if he behaves himself. A slim, pretty girl with a halo of yellow hair looked up into the dark, gloomy face of her partner and said... Look here, Mr. Wyman. If it's true, your name's Stan Wyman and your great-uncle is a, a rich man in Forestville, Connecticut. It's true. Ever since you followed me in here a week ago, you've been back every night to dance with me, staring as if you'd, you'd seen a ghost. I have. A ghost I mean to bring to life. Never mind that double talk. What are you after? Now that you've pumped me to find out I, I can't remember my parents and was brought up by an aunt and uncle on a horrible New Jersey farm and ran away the minute I was old enough, well, what's it to you? Except that you're an actress working here. Here at Flowerland, between jobs, I don't believe a word of it. Leslie? I tell you, my name's Tess Elder. Now, I should know. You should know that your name is Leslie Blair, that you lived on your grandfather's estate in Forestville. Oh, goody. Tell me lots of fairy tales. Until you were 15. Then five years ago... Oh, at least five years ago, I was 15. One morning, you started out for a visit to New York, but you never got there. The train collided with another. There was a horrible wreck. People killed, but your body was never found. For Pete's sake, quit talking as if it really was me. But you are, Leslie, at 20. The same features, same coloring, same trick of laughing with your head to one side. Even now, I can hardly believe my eyes when I look at you. All right, so I'm just like the poor kid. So what? So you're going to... Now, come on. Let's go someplace where we can talk. At first, her grandfather refused to believe that she was dead, kept insisting, hoping that somehow, sometime, she'd be found. I have a notion he still hopes so. And when he sees you wearing this gold locket... Oh, how lovely. I've never seen one like it. Well, there's never been one like it. The old man had a design for her. There's a snapshot of him inside. Go ahead and take a look at it. Oh, he's... he's just precious. I love a face like that. She was wearing it the morning when she started out. I was standing by the car and saw the locket slip to the ground without her noticing it. The clasp broke. I picked it up, meaning it to give it to her when she came back. And then I thought it would make Uncle Charles feel all the worse if I showed it to him. So I've just kept it ever since. You must have been awfully fond of her. Yes, I thought a lot of Leslie. But more of Uncle Charles. I've always wished I could do him a good turn, and, and now I can. But it's cheating. I, I'd feel so mean deceiving But him. you'll be doing no harm. You're not robbing anybody. You can grab off a swell life for yourself and make a lonely old man supremely happy. Now think of that side. It's what I care about. But I wouldn't know how to act or, or what to say. Look, I'll, I'll brief you. If you should make a slip, what more natural after having amnesia, forgetting everything for five years? You sound as if you believe this, this yarn you've made up. I do believe it, and the old man will believe it too. Now here, put on this locket. You've got to start believing it right now. If you could just see your Uncle Charles, you'd be as excited as I am. You say this girl so resembles Leslie. I just don't think two people could look so alike. If she were thrown clear of the wreck, suffered a blow on the head that left her unconscious for days, yes, 
Yes, it's possible. Just barely possible. Besides, sir, who but Leslie could be wearing that gold locket? Hmm? Ah, yes, the locket. She says that when she looks at the snapshot of you, she has, well, sometimes a flash of memory, a certainty that she's known and loved the person it shows. That she once knew a big white house with pillars. But the harder she tries to break through the fog, the more the memory eludes her. And that could be, too. Well, I, I thought if you'd let me bring her here, if she is Leslie, the sight of you and her home might bring back her memory. If it doesn't, well, I'm wrong. But I know you couldn't be fooled. Nor old Deems, either, for that matter. Very well. Bring the girl to me tomorrow. Miss Leslie. Put my word. Mr. Blair. Mr. Blair, sir. Yes, yes, Mr. Deems. What ails you? Miss Leslie, sir. Miss Leslie has come home. So the little actress, Tess Elder, with a convincing story of having for five years forgotten who she was, comes back, carefully coached for weeks by Stan Wyman, to take her place in old Mr. Blair's heart and home as his granddaughter. Listen in a moment when the new American Weekly brings you the surprising conclusion to this front-page drama. With national elections just around the corner, the great new American Weekly in the coming issue is presenting a special article about a very special person. She's Mrs. Adley Stevenson, divorced wife of the Democratic candidate for president. And in this timely and informative feature, writer Eleanor Harris satisfies public curiosity about what kind of woman Ellen Borden Stevenson really is. You'll be interested in Mrs. Stevenson's answers to reporters' questions regarding the chances of a remarriage or how she's going to vote this fall. Be sure to read this fascinating article along with many others coming your way in next week's great new American Weekly... Distributed with a leading Sunday newspaper on sale in this city. And now back to our front page drama. A few weeks later, we find old Mr. Blair playing cribbage before the fire with the girl he has accepted as Leslie. Fifteen two, fifteen four, and a pair is eight. That puts me out. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, someday I'm going to beat you at, at cribbage or, or poker or something. Well, we might make a poker player out of you at that. <laughs> hey, you can be pretty deadpan when you like, I've noticed. You still want to be an actress, Leslie? As a kid, you know you wanted to. Oh, heavens no, never. Not anymore. I think you could be. You can make your face express what you wanted to. Except for your eyes. <laughs> they tell tales, my dear. My eyes tell tales? Oh, take last night when you were seeing me through that bout of sciatica. Oh, not that Deems couldn't have done it as well and let you sleep. You look very gay and casual, except for your eyes, tortured with fear and worry. I was worried and afraid. You suffered so. But I always pull through. Sciatica never killed anybody. Well, I, I hate it anyhow. Shall we play more cribbage, Granddaddy, or, or shall I read to you? No, where the devil is Deems? Never mind, I'll get it. Hello? Hello, Tess. I've got to see you at once. Oh, this is Leslie Stan. Come on over, we're both at home. No, no, come out to the bench by the oak tree. Don't tell where you're going either, and hurry up. But Stan, I... I... Hello? Hello? Be back in a minute, Granddaddy. All right, my dear. You, you haven't been here for days. Uh, the old man gave me the brush off last time I came. But everything's fine for you, thanks to me. Now it's time you kicked in. Of 
course, Dan, if you're in trouble, I... I'm in money trouble. You've got to get me $1,000 by Saturday. But I can't ask him for money to give to you. You can ask him for money. Dear Granddaddy can't refuse you anything. I hear he's changed his will, made you his heir. You're fixed for life, and you'll see that I am, too. If you know what's good for you. You'll get me that thousand and anything else I want. Why else do you think I went to all that trouble? You brought me here just so I could get hold of his money. Now, don't play dumb. What do you think? I thought you wanted to make him happy. That's what you said. And it has made him happy. He looks ten years younger. And I'm... I'm so fond of him, just as you said you were. I don't care a plugged nickel for that old goat. Could I have been such a fool? Well, don't be a worse one now. You get me that thousand for a starter, or I'll call upon Uncle Charles, apologize humbly for being taken in by you, and show him proof that you're no more Leslie Blair than I am. I don't think I haven't got proof. I took care of that in case you reneged, but you won't. Now go on in there and talk to Uncle Charles. All right. I will. My soul, what's the matter, Leslie? You're white as a sheet. Well, I, I've been talking to Stan. He uh, wants he, money, I dare say. If I don't give him a thousand dollars by Saturday, he'll tell you that I'm not Leslie. I'm just a not very good actress. My name is Tess Elder. When he met me in New York and saw how much I looked like Leslie, he, he persuaded me. Oh, please, Mr. Blair, try to forgive me. It was such a temptation. I, I was so hard up. And he told me it was just because he wanted to make you happy. I was so dumb, I never dreamed that he... That he meant blackmail. No, no, I could never do a thing like that. And would you please always remember that these past weeks have been just heaven. I've never before in all my life had anybody that belonged to me, that I could love. There's only one thing I'd like to beg of you, and then I'll go away. And what's that? If I could just keep this gold locket... As a remembrance of the only real home I've ever had. Well, so Sten finally got round to putting the screws on. What did you say? You sit down here on this stool at my feet, as you always do, while I have my say. When Sten came to me with this preposterous story, I don't think I've ever been so mad in my life. Of course, I didn't believe a word of it. When I told him to fetch you here, I meant to tell you both off and send you packing. When you came with your yellow hair and your big brown eyes, my Leslie to the life, it was as though the Lord had made you so like her to brighten an old man's life. And I don't believe the devotion you've shown could be pretense. Oh, no. No, never. As I grew fonder of you, I, I can't tell you how I hoped that when Stan did put the screws on, you'd do just what you have done. So I may keep you here with me always. Granddaddy. Granddaddy, I'm so glad you knew. Of course I knew. My granddaughter wasn't wearing that locket when she went to her death. Stan didn't see me come down off the porch to watch her go. But I saw him stoop down and pick the locket up and put it in his pocket. Now, let's go out into the garden together and tell young Stan where he gets off. And so ended the story of Tess Elder, who met the searing test of truth and earned her right to happiness. This has been another front-page drama presented by the new American Weekly. 
Naturally, real names have not been used. Prominent among the many fascinating features which everyone will find absorbing reading in the coming issue of the great new American Weekly is an article called On Trial for Love. Written by Gloria von Heiberg, it tells her story, the story of a gripping courtroom drama that was staged in St. Louis. The principles in this drama were the law versus an American girl, a girl who had lost her heart to an enemy soldier. Be sure to read this engrossing story of an American girl who answered guilty to the charge of harboring an enemy of her country, but who claimed that she was really guilty only of love. It's coming your way in next week's issue of the great new American Weekly, distributed with a leading Sunday newspaper on sale in this city. The full name of this program is the American Weekly Program Front Page Drama. The radio series showcased a true-life story from the forthcoming American Weekly magazine, which was a colorful tabloid full of fiction and news that claimed the greatest circulation in the world and was carried by the Sunday newspapers owned by Hearst. The show ran from the 1930s through the 1950s. It was directed by Paul Keyes. Front-page drama episodes focused on well-acted, short, dramatic presentations of that week's story. Stories such as investigators uncovering a fraud spiritualist, police investigating murder, mysterious happenings on an isolated lighthouse, a man who is dead in one state and alive in another, heartwarming stories of family love, Captain Kidd's treasure map, and many, many more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.